want to look and feel better physically, want to feel better about yourself as a queer person? Yeah, we all do. Right? Then this week's Queer Money episode 304 uncovers a topic we don't often discuss, the connection between food, the diet industry, and the appearance culture. Our guest, Dahlia Kinsey, an expert in this, is here to share Dahlia's findings and wisdom. And of course, it's all with a queer flavor and a dash of financial well-being. So let's get on with the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Gainbridge sponsors the best, including the Indiana Pacers, Indiana Fever, Indiana 500, and the Queer Money Podcast. That's because Gainbridge believes dedication is an essential component of success in every community. Visit Gainbridge.life today. Welcome back to another episode of the Queer Money Podcast. So I'm a little bit nervous but super excited for the guests that we have on this week. This isn't a topic that we talk a lot about on the podcast, but food and diet and appearance have played a major impact in our lives, for John and I especially, not only in our lives, but also in our financial life. And as we've mentioned on the show before, we believe that the 20% of personal finance, the personal side of personal finance, that can have an overshadowing impact on how we interact with and relate to our money story. And this can contribute to or detract from our financial well-being. And this week's guest, Dahlia Kinsey, has researched the topics of food and diet and appearance all from a queer and BIPOC perspective, something we don't often see. And this is the primary reason we have invited Dahlia on the show. So welcome to the show, Dahlia. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. And thank you for being courageous talking <laughs> about something that makes you nervous. That's huge. And we're doing without wine. So that's right. extra courageous. <laughs> yes. Extra points. <laughs> that's for later. Right. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the outset, that the idea of understanding how diet, especially diet culture, is uh, and food and how those two combine, as well as our appearance, uh, the desires for appearance and uh, appealing to other people, those can have a big impact on our lives. And that's why we are really excited to talk to you, especially because you have just written a new book called Decolonizing Wellness. And folks, as you're watching, if you're watching on YouTube, if you're listening, I just held up the book. Remember that we give away a copy of the book, the the month that that we do this, that we interview someone who has a book, we give away a copy of the book. So make sure you're subscribed to the Queer Money Podcast newsletter, and you can subscribe in the link in your podcast player. So we're excited to talk about your book. So I I just have a lot of questions and I want to be very cautious and very careful here, right? Because I'm only one tiny segment of the queer community. And then on top of that, we are not a part of the BIPOC community at all. So for those listening and for for you, Dahlia, please, please give us some grace. If we say some things in in a uh, inappropriate manner, I don't think that we intend to do that. But so we will try to direct to you a lot of these questions. In reading your book, there were so many things that it brought up so many feelings for me about my interaction with food, memories with my family, who I no longer have contact with, and memories with my my chosen family that we have together now, um, all of those kinds of things. So I definitely want to dive into some of that. But the first one I, I want to kind of comment on, and folks, for those of you who are listening or watching, I truly believe that the intro to this book and the first chapter is a must read for every queer person, no matter who we are, because it addresses so many issues that many of us struggle with from a very, very early age in our life. So please get a copy of this book and at least read that much because it will make you think, right? So, so Dahlia, um, in the intro- It's a nice quick read. It is. 
Thank you. In the intro, you say, I've come to understand that the stress of being marginalized is as much a larger contributor to health disparities than our eating habits alone which is, I find interesting, since healthcare can be one of the biggest costs that in life for many folks in our community, but especially for trans folks, can you maybe explain what you are mentioning here and, and what you're really talking about and can maybe give us an example or two? Stress is so taxing. And almost all of us know by now that stress can shorten your lifespan and completely change what you feel like during that short life. So to not address the fact that having people make you feel small, unwelcome, and unsafe on a regular basis, not acknowledging that that's going to make you experience an elevated level of stress all the time just doesn't make any sense. So when we deal with mainstream, like straight culture here in the US, people are always focusing on health in terms of what they consider to be standard, which is a straight person, usually a white person and not even a poor white person. They don't even take that into consideration. The assumption is that you're not under any stress beyond the normal day-to-day stuff, like changes in relationships, changes with jobs. And they're not considering that some people are chronically stressed and we need to address that chronic stress. And if you give people solutions that don't address that, They're never going to get anywhere. And then they're going to start feeling disempowered. They're going to blame themselves when they're trying to make these positive health changes. And sometimes the advice just isn't a fit at all. So one thing I've seen a lot in the body positive movement that is trying to make people get less attached to the idea of shrinking your body is the only way to be well. (laughs) But an issue I take with that community is that they frequently act as though If you change your body at all, you failed because you did not accept your body. So like they'll really get up in arms about someone who chooses to get weight loss surgery. But also the implication there is that you should just accept and love yourself no matter what. What if you're born into a trans body? Well, then for you, changing your body could be what self-care looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. So to give people like a one size fits all solution to this is what it takes to be well, it just doesn't make sense. And it's really damaging when your lived experience is never addressed. So it sounds like one of the things that you're drawing attention to is that not only do we need to be give ourselves a little bit more grace about who we are and how we present in the world and how we function in the world, but we also maybe need to check ourselves and make sure we're giving everybody else an equal amount of grace because we don't know necessarily they may look and come like me they might come from the socioeconomic class we might be the same color skin but i don't know exactly what they're dealing with so maybe giving them a little bit more grace despite all my assumptions would be good as well absolutely because the way that we're mostly trained to view things here is in a very binary right and wrong way. And there's no gray. And in reality, life is so much more nuanced than that. And I think we're getting even more black and white with everything because of social media. It allows you to put yourself in these silos where everybody agrees with you. You basically just live in an echo chamber. And so when somebody slightly disagrees, you can't have any kind of a relationship with them. But in reality, a lot of times there are people that would advocate for you, would do anything for you, and they're still problematic in some ways. And so you have to decide how much bandwidth you have for people like that. Because I know plenty of people who maybe they're very kind to their one gay nephew, but then politically they're always acting in opposition to their gay nephew's rights. Well, that nephew will have to decide, you know, how much time can I afford emotionally to spend with this family? And so time together that might be restorative for straight family members, when he goes into that situation, his stress is through the roof. And what is that going to do? Like if it's Thanksgiving, well, maybe he's going to binge for comfort because it is going to cause a whole thing if he speaks up and maintains his boundaries around queer issues or whatever other stuff they're saying at Thanksgiving that's inappropriate and uncomfortable for him. So really just understanding that what is right for you at the time is what's most important. And that can change Mm -hmm. and giving yourself permission to let that change. 
That's interesting. A couple of things just popped into my head when you mentioned that. John and I literally- Thanksgiving hits home. Right. <laughs> John and I were on vacation with uh, family and at one time and a conversation came up and literally John and I said, we're going into town and we're getting a hotel because we can't be with it for the rest of the weekend just because the conversation had become so toxic. I think you bring up a good point. I think a lot of people may not have the confidence to do that or the ability to do that. Maybe they financially can't afford to it. So they find some other masking mechanism, right? How do I numb myself from feeling this? Yeah. Which I think kind of leads maybe to a, a, a kind of a sidebar question to this. Clearly then it must be important for us to figure out how to de-stress our lives in order for us to live longer and happier lives. And that means that there are lots of different things that can be stressing our lives. Emotionally, we can be stressed. Financially, we can be stressed. Physically, like you mentioned, maybe the body that we're in is a stressor for us. So we have to figure out how do we do that? And that could potentially bring about a, a long-term benefit to us that we wouldn't necessarily think about right away. Absolutely. And I don't think it's emphasized enough. And even boundary setting, that isn't a skill that I was taught. Yeah. And especially for most people assigned female at birth boundaries, it's not a thing to do what you were able to do at Thanksgiving. Like that is so countercultural for me. I feel like, I don't know. I don't know if I just have a panic attack trying to tell my parents no about anything, but it would be so challenging. But I think that was absolutely the healthiest thing to do in that situation. But then there are other people that's going to take so much emotional energy that won't be the right decision for them or it'd be so upsetting for them. Well, and not but, everybody would have the option to be able to pay for that. Right. We, we were fortunate enough to be able to say, we're out of here. We're going to go stay at a nicer hotel. And we were fortunate enough to have that option, but not everybody has that option. Right. Even if they right. did have the emotional bandwidth. Right. Right. Exactly. So what's going to work for someone else it really just depends. How did you feel when you set that boundary? Did you feel like free or did it give you stress? All I remember is we went to the hotel. We went straight to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, my guess is we must've been stressed to some degree and we still needed, but you know, the things, you know, as you were telling that story, I was thinking to myself, if we couldn't have escaped like that, what would we have done otherwise? And we probably would have just had the wine that was at the house or drank whatever yes. that we had had at the house. But the problem with that though, is that could have just spiraled because when do you stop drinking until you can tolerate everybody? Probably not until you pass out and you've said a couple of things, you've offended, you pissed everybody else <laughs> off. And now, now you're the jerk. Whereas when, when we, we left, we, I think we might've maybe maintained some control at the hotel. For me personally, having left my family. When I came out, I knew that I was going to be disowned by my family. I think there was a little bit of, I, I already know what this feels like. I can deal with this if the family says, want you guys around anymore, which would be a difficult thing. But what was so surprising about it is I do look back on it and think that a certain level, there was a certain level of respect that we earned by saying, we can't do this. We cannot be in this place and be treated this way which I think is an important thing, right? That's an important lesson for all of us to learn. Eventually, if you can set those boundaries, those boundaries, that boundary setting can become empowering to you and show your strength to others. Absolutely. For me, it's definitely been worth it to develop that skill. It really started in therapy because it wasn't something that I was trained to do. And it also was not something that culturally I see people reinforcing like at school and public places, think about in public school. Well, I don't know if you went to public school, but it's all about control and children are told they don't have any boundaries. Right. You just do whatever the adults tell you to do. Right. Well, you right. say, this doesn't feel right. I feel uncomfortable. You say you have to go to the bathroom. You need permission. Apparently that's not how it is everywhere. I saw on TikTok people from other countries, they were mind blown that American kids have to ask for permission to go to the bathroom. We and had to fill out a card. We had to get a signature. <laughs> Did you not have the, the whole pants? Yes. Card? Yeah. Yes. Or, it never or sometimes that not everybody had to do that. Yeah. If you wanted to take a break from wood shop, you had to carry this big two by four to the bathroom. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Which is somewhat our key on, it was about this big. It wasn't crazy big, but it was somewhat demoralizing because you know, you yeah. sit through the bathroom. It's a human function that people do several times a day. <laughs> You're being trained in school 
to just follow orders and whether or not this is intentional, they're also training you to ignore your body because they tell you when to eat. It's almost never when you're hungry. Some kids are eating lunch like one hour after they have breakfast and then other kids aren't eating until almost the end of the day. And they give you about 10 or 15 minutes. So you are just stuffing it in. So that is years of training not to listen when it comes to appetite. And then them telling you, you can't even urinate when you want to. Again, like the culture is telling us, you don't know what you're doing. You need someone who's in charge to tell you what to do, even in terms of how to handle your own body. And I don't know how sex ed was handled in your towns, but here in the South, the way they did sex ed, it was more training that you can't trust your body. You can't trust yourself. You can't trust your instincts. It's going to be a disaster. Pleasure is dangerous. So we really can't blame ourselves when you grow up and you have all of these hangups and you can't even remember when it started. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. Heard a rumor about annuities? Cut out the noise by visiting Queer Money podcast sponsor Gainbridge at gainbridge.life to learn more. So I have a question then. You said you've alluded that you've done therapy to help you overcome this. What then would be your suggestion to other people to maybe overcome all this indoctrination that we've all dealt with in addition to maybe therapy, especially if someone can't afford therapy? Yes. To just start questioning your assumptions and to expose yourself to more people with different lived experience. Because sometimes even when I've realized some things were not universal, just from paying more attention when my white cis male friends are talking and hearing what they think is normal versus what I think is normal. So like going into a situation where you need to negotiate a salary, hearing what a straight white man might say versus what someone assigned female at birth and a person of color might say, how much fear you might feel versus them going in confident and doing what they need to do. You really need to be exposed to other people to mirror back to you that like, there are very few things that are set in stone. Even what we think is right for breakfast, that depends on what part of the country you're from, what country you're from, what ethnic group you're from. So many things are flexible, but you don't even know it until somebody shows you. Cause I know For myself, it wasn't until I left the U.S. that I really realized how much I am American through and through, even though I always felt like an outsider, even in America with one non-American parent. But when you go other places and people think bathing with cold water is normal, that's when you realize, oh, yeah, I'm American. I'm very American. What country (laughs) country do you bathe with cold water? Almost everybody. People (laughs) think it's ridiculous that we're wasting energy heating water. They oh think we're goodness. wasteful, we're crazy. But I don't want a cold shower. No, absolutely I, I, not. No, I'm there with you. We're, I'm sitting in the hot tub. Yeah. And I, what I also heard from that was that it, it's not wrong to have ice cream for breakfast. I, you know what? Hey, you should really do what you want to do. But I bet if you have ice cream for breakfast for several days, you'll lose interest. <laughs> That's probably true. Let's see how your your body reacts. Well, my doctor just told me I have higher cholesterol, so maybe I should not try that strategy. Right. Yeah, maybe not for you. Yeah, but you do have to fit in the things that make you happy. But right. the question is, when would the ice cream make you the most happy? Because your body probably is telling you, "No, thank you for breakfast." Yeah. I don't know. Probably not ready for <laughs> coffee either. I might beg to differ. <laughs> All right. I want to carry this conversation a little bit further into this idea of what it feels like for folks who are constantly presented with things that are not who they are, right? And one of the things you say in the book, imagine how annoying it becomes to see the manufacturers and the advertisers continually accept your money and fail to offer you equal access to their products and services. So first of all, we 100% agree. And I I will say, folks, next week on the podcast, we have 
Tanya Hester. Tanya Hester. And we're going to talk about this topic of wallet activism a little bit more. But the question I have for you, Dahlia, is for consuming from small and local establishments that may be very vocal about supporting us, may be beyond the financial abilities of some folks, right? So do you have any suggestions for people who feel like this, right? I feel like the manufacturers or the the service providers don't speak to me and don't, and maybe where I live in the country, the size of town I live in, right? All of those kind of factors. Any suggestions you have for folks? You know, even if you can't afford to spend money with a queer business or a BIPOC business or a local business, you could still be a cheerleader for that business. You could yeah. probably look for opportunities to push other people that way. Maybe if you're making purchases through your job, you can suggest that they look at different types of vendors. And sometimes if you actually ask the local business owners, like, what could I do to support you? They'll have all kinds of ideas. Maybe you don't have any money to share with them, but maybe you have event space or, you know, maybe you can collaborate in some other way, really just asking people. That's the thing. It requires one-to-one communication a lot of times. And we're so busy and we're so used to trying to do everything like in mass that actually having one-on-one human contact just doesn't feel intuitive sometimes. But this year I decided I was only going to spend money with LGBTQIA plus and BIPOC businesses unless I couldn't find it. Right. And just that intention has completely changed my perception of how many options I have. I have found salons and even grocers that I did not know were queer owned or black owned or, you know, anybody else under the bigger umbrellas. And it hasn't been that much more expensive. I thought it was going to be, and I've had some extreme improvements in quality with some of the things. Nice. So for me, it's really just been having the intention and then you'll be looking for opportunities and whatever's going to work for you and your budget is going to pop up. So I'm curious, I've, I saw that because of Black History Month, somebody posted somewhere, Facebook, Twitter, or whatever, I don't know, whatever, something about encouraging people, readers to support uh, Black-owned businesses. And somebody commented on that thread saying, why does it even matter? And I was like, I was like, because stupid, but do you have a, <laughs> do you have a, a smarter, a smarter way to articulate that? Why that's, <laughs> this is, that's a total res- mom and dad response, right? Because, because I said, stupid. stupid. do you have a smarter way to articulate the value of supporting black owned businesses, BIPOC owned businesses, queer owned businesses? Yeah, I really think it's a question of equity, not equality. And I think this is where some people are getting confused. They're thinking that everything should be equal. You shouldn't treat anybody differently. We should be colorblind, blah, blah, blah. There's nothing wrong with being different. Diversity is beautiful and beneficial. We should celebrate it, not try to ignore it. And we also need to acknowledge the reality that some people are starting off in their business several steps behind other people. So if you had access to generational wealth and a lot of people I know living in the South, it's a very interesting situation because white people are a huge part of your life down here. We're not nearly as segregated as like Northern states, even though they think they're less racist, they're mistaken. And in the middle of the country, it also seems like there's not as much of an integrated situation going on. So I know a lot of white folks who do not think of themselves as having access to any generational wealth, but they're taking for granted how some of us are starting with absolutely zero. Like if your parents were able to give you any help to go to college, if your grandma left you a house that the, you know, the roof's falling in, it doesn't matter. Did she leave you something like even small things like that? That's generational wealth. That could be something you can liquefy and use it to help you start a business. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when you see a black owned business, this person has had to learn how to do everything themselves in order to get it started because you didn't have money to hire a copywriter. You didn't have money to hire an editor. You didn't have money to hire somebody to help you with marketing. So it could have taken you years to do what somebody else with cash flow could have done right out the gate. And since we are also more likely to be denied loans, even if 
that's the route you wanted to go, you may not be able to do it until you can bankroll your, you know, entrepreneurial operation yourself. So when you prioritize helping black business owners, that's trying to help the most vulnerable and trying to help bring people up to a level where they're equal with their competition. And there's no shortage of white customers in the United States that would prefer to shop with white people, even when people don't want to admit it. Mm-hmm. Right. There are a lot of people that naturally are going to associate quality and premium with white skin because yeah. that's what we've all been trained to think. And only recently, I don't know if you ever noticed, but in the 80s and the 90s, when you looked at Black people in magazines, they always looked a mess compared to the white people who are being photographed because people show up to these shoots. They don't have makeup for black people. They don't know how to light you correctly. So you always look like a janky version of what everybody else has. And only recently do I see people really providing equal services with the makeup and the photography. And so I'm just realizing here in the 2000s that like, oh, we've always been just as glam. We didn't have the same resources. Mm -hmm. It's so funny you bring that up because John and I just got done watching a series that did, it was on HBO and it did decades. So it was like, I think think they did the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. And I can't remember if it was, I think it was when they got to the 90s, Was I think it was in the, the 90s when Vanessa Williams won the Miss America oh, yeah. pageant. And I remember turning to John and saying, wow, look at the difference in the color between the ma- makeup on her face and the makeup on her neck. Yes. And I was just like, <laughs> this is crazy. Why is it so different? And I guess that kind of speaks to the fact that we are seeing some progress, right? We're seeing some, pro- which is great to see, but it is kind of funny. Just go back and look a couple of decades ago and you realize how much progress has been made. Not that that there isn't more to make. There definitely is more to make, but it's a ve- it's very interesting when it stares you right in the face that visually. <laughs> yeah, the things that people don't notice, it's so funny. I'm friends with a lot of people who are active, they're allies, they're always doing anti-racist work, but all the time they're surprised when I share something about like the reality of my life that they never considered, like even going to the bathroom and trying to use the water faucet. A lot of times it won't turn on for me because they designed it for white hands. Really? And I thought it was heat censored. You know, some of them are, they've made improvements because uh-huh. of complaints and people pointing it out. I can send articles. You put yeah. the show. No, 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 I, I trust you. Wait, it's not worth dis- dis- disbelieving you. It's just that. Wow. It's just crazy to know that the world is so not made for you. And I didn't even know that it was related to skin color until mm-hmm. my spouse was like, what do you mean? It won't turn on. Like this is working. And I'm like, oh, because they Every have it. I was like, oh, that's strange. And then when I looked it up, I'm like, oh, okay, this is happening to everybody. So just knowing the pervasiveness of how much the whole world here in the US is set up to prioritize whiteness. And when we were kids, you know, the crayon that said flesh, it wasn't the color of right. my flesh. Right. Band-aid said flesh colored, mm, not mine. Right. Stuff like that. We've seen shifts with that, but it's still everywhere. Like even yeah. when I mentioned in the book, you know, looking for, you're trying to decide what kind of manicure you want and you're trying to find it on someone with a similar complexion, you will be on Google for days. Like it <laughs> might be on page 100 is definitely not on the first page. Yeah. Everyone's going to have white skin when you're looking for even something simple like that. Just a lot of businesses don't, provide you any options diversity yeah, wise with their models yeah. which i think speaks to this idea of toxicity what is normal and natural for one person can be toxic for another person and one of the things that you share in the book is it became apparent to me how powerful e- using eating as an activity we engage in multiple times a day every day as a tool for untangling toxic internalized messaging could be 
So we haven't talked a lot about the food aspect of this, of your book yet. Maybe kind of explain what you mean by that and give us some examples, because I do think that almost every single one of us can give an example of where we've been or felt like we're in a toxic environment or have seen something toxic. We can talk about toxicity and other things a little bit later, but give us an example of what you think of how we can use food as a way to to heal that what maybe and without it being the crutch right is yeah. cuz i think there's a balance there right yeah in the book i'm framing it as a trigger that you can use for mindfulness and pointing your attention inward to see what do you really want and learning to restore that trust that you know what to do that you don't need to ask someone else. You don't need to ask somebody, how many times should I breathe today? You don't need to ask somebody like, who should I date? You already know what you want to do. Do you trust yourself enough to do that? You see all the time people realizing after years of research that the more we got involved with something, the worse we made it. So the more complicated we make something like eating, generally the worse off you are. So if you try and neutralize the way you feel about food, which I know is a challenge because most of us have really complicated relationships with food, Mm -hmm. but if you try it as an experiment that you want to see, when does my body feel satisfied and what happens when I keep going and I ignore that, what do I want to do differently the next time I eat? A lot of times when people are thinking about being good or being on a diet, if you change something about your diet or you deviate, you say, oh, well, I'll start tomorrow. You just like do whatever. Everybody starts a diet on Sunday. Right? And you're like, oh, you know, Monday, Monday. And it's just like in that, in the meantime, you basically eat as though you'll never get to eat again. Mm -hmm. And you stay in the scarcity mindset. And you are a little fearful about, well, what am I going to feel like? I don't want to be uncomfortable when the dieting starts. So it is kind of this fear-based thing that we do when we binge until Monday. And then inevitably, you know, a couple of days later, or hell, maybe Monday afternoon, (laughs) you deviate (laughs) from your plan again. And it's like the shame spiral. And you feel like you can't trust yourself. You can't trust your desires. And, oh, my cravings are out of control. And it just really creates a contentious relationship with your own intuitive, you know, relationship with food. And so if you can change your relationship with food or your relationship with desire and appetite, you can change your relationship with yourself just naturally that routine of trying to hear what your body is saying. Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ community, through access to credit, tools to manage debt, and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. When we were talking before the the interview, before the podcast started, one of the things I mentioned was that there was, I think, a little bit of shame, right? And you kind of, your eyes, you know, kind of perked up when I mentioned that. And I think that this was one of the points that I was maybe feeling a little bit of shame about because John and I have, for, for whatever reason, in the last year and a half during the pandemic, I think especially, we just have become so accustomed to sitting down and eating, even the food that we prepare ourselves, we sit down and eat in front of the TV. And we just miss the whole meal and the appreciation mm-hmm. for the whole meal and the signals that our body is giving us while we're eating, good signals for the food when we appreciate it, the signals that you've had enough, we're missing all of those signals, right? Because we're just consuming. And, and so we've, we've recently started having dinner and lunch. More at, of our meals. More of our, not table. all of not them, all. but more of our meals <laughs> at the dining room table, oh, right? Because I'm the kind of person where I would sit down and eat 20 cups of popcorn, pop popcorn in one sitting and never pay attention to the fact that my body for the last 10 minutes has been saying, that's enough, that's enough, need to put it down. That's one that, that's going to be a hard one to break because typically I eat popcorn in front of the TV. So, Yeah, it, it's funny too how habit and just location 
will trigger eating. We eat for so many different reasons. So it could be routine. And sometimes even though you hate to tell people this, sometimes you just have to accept that it's going to be uncomfortable while you're trying to change the habit, Mm -hmm. but the payoff is worth it. Just like with the boundaries, it's uncomfortable when you start trying to establish and maintain boundaries, but it really pays off in the long run, but it isn't easy. If it was more people would do it. Right. I think we've all created a, a baseline of homeostasis for ourselves, whether that's good for us or not, we've created this baseline. And then all of a sudden we're going to say, we're going to try to do different, something different, whether it's better or worse, we're going to try to do something different. All of a sudden you shake up that homeostasis and your body is like, no, take me back to that place. Give me the 12, 20 cups of popcorn <laughs> while I watch project runaway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and almost everything we do, if you find yourself really having trouble letting go of something, it's doing something for you. Yeah. Yeah. So you what is it doing though, right? That's the exactly. question. Exactly. Yeah. So you have to question like what is the thing that I need that I'm getting from this experience that might also be hurting me, or I just want to stop it because it doesn't feel mindful. What do I actually need? Like, do you need comfort at the end of the day? Do you need to give yourself permission to just relax? And I find this is a major issue among working class people, which would be like literally all of us who, if you don't make money in your sleep, you're working class. I don't care if you make $400,000 a year. If you have to keep working to keep a roof over your head, in my opinion, you're working class. Maybe not everybody agrees, but when you are not super rich, you've been trained to be productive. That's what you're supposed to do. And when you sit around doing nothing, you feel uncomfortable. You feel like you should be working. You should be doing something. And sometimes we'll eat because we're like, oh, I don't have to work right now. I'm eating. I can't get up. I'm eating. And it's not something we've thought about consciously, but are we eating while we're relaxing and resting? Because we feel like we need to justify the fact that we need to rest sometimes. That makes sense. Well, you know, even in the Bible, it says idle hands, the devil's workshop. So the minute you sit still, mm. you're being a bad human. So go do something. <laughs> does the Bible really say that though? It does. <laughs> that, that is such a good point. I never even thought about that, but yeah, that's our puritanical roots in this country. Yeah. And that belief that, you know, that prosperity gospel stuff, that if you're holy or sanctified, you're going to be productive and working all the time. Right. But productivity and reality goes up when we rest. And it's interesting that if you're rich and you decide to like, oh, I'm going to have a gap year, I'm going to travel the world. And then, you know, I'll decide what I want to do. That's fine. But if you're poor and you're like, I'm not going to work this year, everybody thinks you're a piece of trash. So you have to question, that's the funny thing about privilege. Everybody has it in different areas and there's nothing wrong with privilege. It's like what sucks is not everybody has it. And it would be nice if we could all have the same privileges, but even with something like that, I mean, you could be a white straight man raised in a working class family and you have that compulsion to always be productive. And we saw it during the last recession when banks were allowed to like default and big companies were too big to fail. But if you as an individual said, you know what, the bank doesn't want to work with me. I'm not going to stress myself out over this. I'm not going to work myself to death. I've lost my job, whatever. I'm just not going to pay the bill. Oh, you're trash. That's the messaging. So you, the poor individual, you're trash if you don't pay your bills. But it's okay for rich people to just make good business decisions, sometimes defaulting on a loan you know, or declaring bankruptcy is a good business decision. But some of us have been trained that that isn't acceptable for us. So just learning to question when you have something weighing on you, question what is the belief behind it that makes it feel like you don't have any other options. What I'm getting out of this, this is so weird. So we interviewed Tanya Hester, who wrote Wallet Activism, and she was talking about how to use your spending to truly and honestly support your values, not just in theory, you know, taking it a step beyond like voting with your dollar. And what I really got from her book was just a sense of the need to just simply be more conscious about what all of your actions result in, right? You know, you get these two jars of two pounds of garlic for under $8. Well, how did that become so cheap? Who had to pay a consequence so that you could get that cheap garlic? I'm John just it. bought two pounds a of garlic. A real life example. I was, very proud of, I was very proud of my purchase. 
<laughs> but I had to think to myself, thanks, Tanya, I felt guilty. How did this garlic get so, I mean, it came to be minced. It's all ready to use, right? So how did it get so cheap? Who had to pay the price to make this so cheap for me? So what I'm getting oh, from, yeah. from what you're saying is simply being more conscious about why are you doing the things that you're doing, sort of asking your questions, yourself the question of why am I doing this? How is this making me feel? What am I actually searching for? It's amazing what a difference just mindfulness makes because that's Mm -hmm. mindful spending and eating mindfully. It's ridiculous how simple it can be just setting an intention, just trying to look at it. You're not trying to change. You're just looking at it. It's interesting. Even when you do research, if you tell someone you're studying them, their behavior almost immediately changes. (laughs) Right. And even if it's unconscious, people will start doing what they think you want them to do, or they'll start at least trying to do what they think you expect of them. Like they don't want to seem strange or unacceptable. And we're just wired that way. So if you just decide, I'm just going to write down what I'm feeling before I'm eating, or I'm just going to write down what I spent this week and why, and where did that come from? Yeah. And I love that you said who had to pay the price because in reality, somebody did. Yeah, someone minced that garlic, and I'm sure they didn't get to go to the bathroom whenever they wanted to. They probably only got paid eight dollars an hour, if at best. Right. right. If yeah, exactly. And if it was outside of the U.S., goodness only knows. One of the really disturbing things, like this, keeps me up at night sometimes, is knowing that I like to vote with my dollar. I definitely believe in that. But then it's almost impossible to opt out of slave labor in 2022. Right. Like our phones, everything. Yeah. So I think we have to balance personal accountability with the fact that some things are systemic Mm -hmm. and not make ourselves wrong for doing the best we can in a whack system. Right. Well, that was Tanya's argument as well. Those of us who aren't part of the 1% of the 1% shouldn't feel so guilty because we didn't really create these structures. We can't really break them down. Those who are more responsible are those who have more and who have created these systems and have the money and the power to be able to change them. But I, we, I say to David all the time, everybody talks about you know how they got their cheap phone, but how do they think they got that, that phone so cheap? That phone is really expensive. There's a lot of technology in there. How did it get? How did it get so cheap for you? Somebody's paying the price for that, right? Heard a rumor about annuities? Cut out the noise by visiting Queer Money podcast sponsor Gainbridge at gainbridge.life to learn more. You know, one of the things I really liked about your book is that all throughout the book, this idea of mindfulness comes up a number of times. And I love that you stop and ask people to take the time to journal or to answer a couple of questions to actually, John's looking at me. I don't, David I, I hate the word journal. I don't hate it. I'd struggle with journaling. It's not. He always says, I don't know what to write about. I just write what you're feeling. He's like, I don't feel anything. Cold inside. Is it easier yes. for you to talk out your feelings? Because you can use a voice note in place of a journal. I probably oh, I should that. do that. I, I love probably, that. Uh, yes, I probably. And there's an app As long as I'm, I'm the only one in the room talking. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I thought you said you feel like they were that when you talk to me. <laughs> so, I mean, that really counts though. I mean, when you're talking with a trusted partner, everybody's different. So even the exercises, if it doesn't feel right for you, it's not right for you. Like right. I wouldn't even say it probably isn't. It isn't like, you know yourself. And if it's to the point that your partner's like, yeah, mm, he's not going to do that. And you know, that's not your thing, but you can adapt it and make it work for yourself. And I think that's something we're not used to doing, looking at something and saying, yeah, whatever they said it worked for them, but you know, I get the concept and I'm going to do what works for me. Yeah. So I do appreciate that several times in the book, you brought up something that I can relate to. You you discuss things from a gay male perspective. And I, I do appreciate that, you know, because for me personally, and this is, I'm speaking to you as our listeners, we know that the vast majority of our listeners are gay men, but there's something in here that I kind of wanted to scratch an itch with and maybe get your thoughts on this question. So one of the things you say in, in the book is to Let's see here. A common response to experiencing limited access to privilege is to scrape for status and relish opportunities to experience dominance over others, savoring privilege crumbs at every opportunity. And so I want to ask, do you feel like this scraping for status is part of the cause that many of us in our community feel like we need to outperform? 
We need to outperform physically. We need to outperform financially. We need to outperform with our possessions and also maybe with our food or at times of giving. And I think that there's a very strong tendency in the gay male population to try to do this, to out, to do this from my perspective, right? I, granted, one person's perspective is one person's perspective. I feel like there's a strong, I need to outperform. I need to wear the nicest suit or the nicest outfit to this gala event that we're going to. I have to raise my hand when they ask who can give $10,000, even though I don't have $10,000 to give, I've got to give, you know? So I see this happening in our community. And I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. It reads like armor to me, like a barrier that you're putting up in between you and other people, maybe a little concerned that if you just show up as yourself without all of these other things that you won't be deemed worthy and you won't be enough just showing up as is. And I'm sure there's somebody out there who loves to do all those things just because maybe not all of those in one person, but most people, it's really not for them. Like they don't love these things or these activities. They're hustling for worthiness essentially. And I think a lot of times, even with the, the atmosphere that people create romantically, when they come out and just that emphasis on the body, it could be a trigger. So even if you were kind of feeling like you needed to prove you're worthy, or you wondered if you were going to find love when you're like a young baby queer, once you <laughs> actually get on grinder and everybody's like perfection only imperfect men need not apply. Well, then you're being trained that like, okay, in my community that I now realize I'm part of, when you show up, you better be perfect. And even though I love shade, I mean, I love pettiness, but when we are criticizing people's bodies, the way they dress, their sense of style, even if it's hilarious, Think of how many people were triggering to think, oh, I don't ever want that to be me. Right, I don't right. want people to be laughing at me because I didn't know this hairstyle was like completely over or I'm out here maybe over. Like we said before the call, I thought it was kind of, it's sad and it's telling when somebody goes too far with the blur with the Zoom. It's just like, oh, honey, <laughs> like, who do you think you're fooling? Like, it's kind of sad and you don't want to be that person. So we have to think about how us body policing or fashion policing other people, even if it's just we're criticizing famous people, what is that doing to our friends when they hear us talk that way? What is it doing to our partners, our lovers? And what is it doing to us when we tear other people apart? I'm not sure I want to get rid of all the pettiness because I don't know, it still tickles me, but maybe we should be so open about it. You just have to acknowledge that there's a consequence to that. Even if it's Mm. just between two people and it's never going to leave that bubble, there is a consequence to that, right? You're creating a vibration of some sort. And both of you are picking up on on that micro or even hidden message. Yeah. Mm, That's a really good point. It kind of also, you talk a lot about the white supremacy in the way that we have kind of the diet culture, the appearance culture and all of that, and also the heteroness of it, right? The binary and heteroness of it. I'm curious if there are a lot of queer folks who are in these industries, right? They're in the beauty industry. They're, they're vloggers on YouTube telling people how to wear their makeup and how, how to style themselves and how, you know, doing people's hair and all of this, how do we as folks inside the queer community, especially those who may be in that group that are potentially, they may potentially fall into that trap of continuing this, you must be this height, you must be this weight, or you must be this, you can only be this thick, right? We have all these different things. I mentioned to you in the outset before we started the show, this I just, for the first time reading your book, learned about the creams and and things that people are taking inside of their body to change the color of their skin to look whiter, especially people of color. And so how do people prevent themselves from getting into the trap of, oh, well, I have to do it this way because that's how the popular people are doing it. I think it really 
has to start with your own work and seeing where you have biases. Like if you notice that, let's say you only date men who are very muscular, question like, where does that come from? Is it really possible that the only folks out there that could be a great match for you all look the same way? Like what are the chances that someone's outer shell is really telling you this is a person for you? And even look at just the way things change with, for a while, I think about Twiggy's extreme thin look. That was natural for her. And then we put it up on a pedestal and pressured all women of that era to be that size. And now we have everybody getting like Brazilian butt lifts and everything and going in a more Kim Kardashian direction. And again, well, that's actually not natural for her, but still everybody leaning in this direction. You may not question the trends, but we need to question the trends and then also question if you're working with an individual client or if you're creating content, are you reminding people to also consider themselves and their individual body? Like I remember having my eyebrows overplucked just to the point that some of them didn't grow back in the nineties. Remember how everybody just had like those ridiculous little pencil brows <laughs> and nobody I, I'm questioned. sorry. I was, I was, well, I wasn't paying attention to women in the nineties. I was looking at all the men. <laughs> I don't remember a whole lot of men doing that, but I'll tell yeah, you, know, you. I never even thought about that. I guess the guys never had to do that, but you didn't question like, is this right for my face? Right. This is right for anybody's face, <laughs> but especially like, is this going to work on my face? If you are giving people one size fits all advice, if you're telling everybody like this is the best, or you find yourself constantly ridiculing people who are a little chubby or, you know, disheveled, or if you never feature anybody who is disabled and you never look at older people who are beautiful, but their hair is gone all white and you're focused on just young and thin. And you just really have to look at your own bias. And sometimes it helps just to look at the work that you've done. This was a crazy thing that happened to me. I I'm on my second podcast now that is more, well, it is aligned with my values, but my first like 10 interviews, I had already said You know, I wanted this to be a welcoming space for everybody, but I was looking at all of my guests and everybody was white. And I'm like, how did I do that? And (laughs) I didn't notice. Right. So really it's, we just have to pay more attention. And like we've been saying with everything, be more mindful about everything that we're doing. Well, and I think your example is a great example because we've we've made the same mistake too, right? Every now and then we send our blog out to folks and like, give us your your immediate first thoughts about that. And inevitably, when we send the blog out, and we ask for the feedback. We just happen to not pay attention, and the last ten or twelve posts were all of white people, even though we tried to be very cognizant of trying to be inclusive. Every now and then we fail, but I think we also need to be, you know, you as well as us and everybody else need to give ourselves a little bit of grace because we've been all told by marketers, especially since the fifties, this is what perfect looks like. This is this little box and we all need to fit into it. And if we don't fit into it, we need to try to appeal to that environment. And so all of us have been somewhat indoctrinated that this is this myopic perspective of happiness and wealth and health and all that stuff. And so we just kind of, even even though we're part of a minority community, we sometimes make that same mistake because we've been conditioned as well. I see all the time how queer couples will keep holding themselves up to heteronormative standards and just constantly comparing themselves. So it's like, we don't have to do that. If you've done all the work to come out, you don't have to keep doing that. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not super mask, you don't have to pretend to be like, there's some people who really play down their own femininity because, you know, they've just been, train like all of us to not respect femme presenting things Mm. and people. Especially I think for folks who did not grow up in a large city where there were queer identities for them to see, or for us who are older, Gen X and older, 
presenting as mask as a gay man, especially, or as a lesbian may have been a learned safety mechanism, right? This is me protecting myself. The more mask I could present, the less likely I was going to be beat up in school, less likely I was going to be called names in school, the less likely that my parents, my extremely religious parents would even suspect that I'm gay, right? So that started for me when I was six or seven years old. How do I now at 52, start unwinding that. 51. Oh my God, I just I gave Slow down, an girl extra scout. year. <laughs> <laughs> How do I start to unwind that? I mean, I, I love the fact that queer kids today have the freedom to go to school. And if for I don't want to say for all of them, but for a larger percentage than when I was a kid, when I was going to school, have the freedom to go to school and say, I'm non-binary. I'm gender fluid. I'm a guy, but I'm femme presenting. I, you know, it's just how do those we... weren't options for us. <laughs> they, yeah, they were not yeah. options, right? And so a learned behavior that is this that is this many, old <laughs> that is this old, right? Thank you for yeah, thank you. Because um, sometimes I think back to when I was a teenager, and I do think back to some of the times when I wanted to be myself, but I knew I couldn't. Or the, you know, I, I will say one of the triggering moments for me, when I was five years old, my sister and I got dressed up in my mom's clothes, came walking down the stairs. My dad beat the shit out of me. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally. And so that I think that was my first lesson, right? You do not present femme at all, right? And how do we un- unwind that? You have to feel safe to start experimenting or exploring with who am I outside of what I was socialized to be. And it is hard a lot of times to tell the difference between what was I taught to like versus what do I actually want? But in some areas, sometimes it's really clear to you once you give yourself permission. I was raised in a super conservative religious household. I am low-key abandoned, maybe not like totally abandoned, but pretty much, you know, I don't really have a close relationship with my parents anymore. But when I was a kid going to church, I had to wear dresses. You couldn't wear pants to church. And as a really little kid had to wear those stupid frilly church socks, which are like, there's nothing dumber than a frilly church sock. <laughs> you know that there was a little gay boy in your church who wanted to wear those frilly socks, right? You can have them. Yeah, that's the, that's the sad thing. I'm like, somebody actually wanted these those days in my existence. I kept wearing dresses until 29. No, maybe even lo- later than that. But I started noticing like I had less and less of them. And one day I decided I was just going to throw them all away. And I felt like a weight had been lifted, but I hadn't really accepted that I didn't have to wear dresses anymore because being in the South, I thought, well, when I have to go to a funeral, I have a dress for the funeral or when I go here, I have a dress for this. And even thinking like formal occasions, I hadn't wrapped my head around what is formal wear if I don't wear a dress. But when I gave myself permission to do what I wanted to do, when I notice it in myself is when I keep going back and forth with it. Like a friend pointed out to me that I keep saying, oh, I think I should dye my hair. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I keep flipping and flopping because they're coming in really random. And I think they look like trash in my hair. (laughs) I either want it to all be gray. I want it to look intentional or, or not, but it's going at its own pace. But they said, I think if you really wanted to do it, you would have done it by now. Like you bring this up every time I see you. What if you don't want to do it? And they said it and immediately it was like a weight lifted. If you Mm -hmm. pay attention to your body, When somebody gives you an invitation to look at something a different way, and a lot of times friends who really see you, they're going to reflect other options back to you. Pay attention if it feels like almost like your chest is opening up and you're breathing more freely. Well, then that is a yes. That's your hell yes. But if it makes you feel like kind of constricted or heavy, that's a no. 
And so it's just experimenting and, and going into environments where you get to see other people maybe doing what you think you might want to be doing. So if you feel like maybe you want to explore more femme things, maybe you need to spend some time at drag shows or even just in maybe like a class or something where you get to experiment with makeup or heels, even just maybe try heels on and see how you feel. Some people put heels on and their life has changed. I won't wear heels like ever again. But for some people, that's the only type of shoe they want to be in. And a lot of those people that love heels were assigned male at birth and they still identify as men. And some men love heels. And who said it couldn't be that way? We just have to give ourselves permission to try some things. And it's okay to change your mind. Like, what if you think you want to do it? And then you're like, "Ugh, this isn't really me anymore. What? You can change. I think it's important, especially with the heels thing. Up until like the 1900s, men were wearing heels. There you go. It's, it's a modern day thing <laughs> that men don't wear heels. Prince wore heels and nobody hates him. <laughs> right. That's true. That's true. Isn't it so strange? If somebody does something with confidence, how you might just accept it. Yeah. Or even David Bowie wasn't David Bowie before his time, but he did it with such confidence that we're like, well, maybe men don't usually dress this way, but David Bowie dresses. This way. So it is what it is. <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> yep. He brought about the new wave movement of, uh, of all the hair and, and uh, clothing. So, <laughs> but I think what you're saying, uh, what I keep hearing over and over again, aside from the, in addition to the consciousness aspect of it is, and I guess this is maybe a synonym, but it's just being mindful, being aware of how is this affecting you? Is it making you close up? Is it making you expand? And if you're trying to raise your vibration, you're trying to expand and bring your full self into the world. You want to be seeking emotions and environments and experiences that help you expand a little bit. Exactly. But not related to that at all. You made the comment about the need to keep the dress for the funerals. I constantly think that we need to keep, we have each have a suit that we need to keep in the closet for a funeral. And so it makes me wonder fit in mine anymore. how many, how much clothing are Americans holding on to for this funeral? Mm, <laughs> yeah. <Or wedding. laughs> and does that tell you like the only time you'll be willing to put it on is if somebody dies? That means yeah. you don't want to wear it. That means you don't like, wear if you really it. think about it, like, why do we even have it? And then when I would go to funerals or I would go to church because I had to or something and somebody would saunter in in shorts and they didn't burst into flames or drop dead. I was like, oh, <laughs> right. well, I guess I have options. It's just, Am I willing to just show up and say, it is what it is. This is who I am. This is how I show up. If you want me to be here, I'm here in shorts. If you don't want me to be here, okay, bye. I'm going to (laughs) go home and be comfortable in my shorts. In my shorts. (laughs) I I honestly, when you started telling the story about getting rid of the dresses, I thought you were going to bring up, you finally saw Michelle Obama in a pantsuit and said... (laughs) Yes, that is exactly how I want to look. For the longest time, I wanted power suits because of the sugar bakers, because of designing women. I forgot the name of the show. I knew exactly what you were talking about. (laughs) I finally realized I don't want to wear the suits, but this is just the idea that I had of like a cool, progressive, like feminist, but, you know, not abandoned by their family type of assigned female at birth person. And I thought, oh, that's the pinnacle is the power suit. And then I realized like, oh no, I can just wear, mostly I just want to wear quarter zip ups and sneakers pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) No more power suits for me. Yeah, that was uh, one of the one of the liberating aspects about leaving corporate America. And I told David, I don't ever want to have to wear these business shoes again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I want to wear cool shoes, flip flops yeah. or sneakers or not these horrible, un- horribly uncomfortable shoes. Ugh, yeah, they're the worst. It, it's just funny, though, how some people, they just feel like trash when they put sneakers on. Yeah. And they just can't wait to get dolled up. And I don't understand it, but they should do what feels what they- right to them. Exactly. Right. So I think we've maybe covered three or four of the questions (laughs) of the, I think, 15 topics or questions that I sent to you, which I think, folks, this is this conversation has has gone back and forth between specific stuff that that Dahlia covers in the book. And 
I think the kinds of discussions that this book can elicit in not only your own in your mind, but also with your friends. And I think that's kind of the the important point you're bringing about here, right? Or you want us to to be thinking about is we need to open up our minds a little bit to seeing what it is that we have maybe been trapped in by the hetero white society that we are conditioned to living in and then the maybe some of the traps that we have put ourselves in because of the society we live in right and so yeah. i said to john this is the i know this interview could probably go on for two and a half hours but i know you all won't listen to us for two and a half hours that wouldn't be fair to any of you so I definitely want folks to read, especially that read that intro and first chapter. But I want to ask, where can folks find this book? Where would you prefer that folks go out and buy this book? Direct from the publisher, it's Ben Bella. Or if you just go to daliakinsey.com slash book, just about anywhere books are sold, you can get it. If you have a small bookstore near you, like a locally owned one that you want to support, you could just ask them to get it in stock if they don't already have it. And you can even request that at the library. If you're not in a financial position to buy the book, you can go to the library. And if they don't have it, ask them if they can get it in. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Just a reminder, folks, we do give, we will be giving away one copy of the book in March when in this, this month, when, when we release the episode. So if you're not on our email list already, get on our email list and we will send out an email letting people know that they can have that, get that option. We'll draw a winner from those who respond that they want a copy of the book. Dahlia, it's been a pleasure having you on. Absolutely. I We'll have to have you back. Stay I, I, more think I would love that. <laughs> the, you know, they, it's always nice and somewhat scary to have somebody come along and say, you need to look at things in a slightly different way, or maybe you need to screw your head on backwards um, <laughs> because you're not seeing what's on behind going on behind you. And I think that that's part of what this book did for me and why I loved it so much. And so I appreciate you coming on. We thoroughly love this book and we want others to read it. Where can folks also follow you and find you on socials, on your site, all of that kind of stuff? You mentioned Really, LinkedIn is the only social media I'm actively using. Okay. But you can always email me if you visit daliakinsey.com and you decide you want to be there when I do a book reading, then you can join the mailing list. If you reply to that, it comes straight to me, or you can just email me hello at daliakinsey.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Queer Money Podcast. Here's your Queer Money takeaway from this episode. Please get Dahlia Kinsey's book, Decolonizing Wellness, and at least read the intro and the first chapter. Then remember to join the Queer Money newsletter to qualify to win a free copy of Dahlia's book. Then join us next week when we talk about how to really, truly, and consistently vote with your dollar when we talk with Tanya Hester about her book, Wallet Activism, thanks to the recommendation of someone in the Queer Money Facebook group. Thank you and have a queer week.